All right, grab a seat, everybody. Let's uh, let's jump in here. I got presents and a stocking at home waiting for me, so I'm going to talk fast this morning. All right, welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming this morning. I appreciate you being here, and I hope that it not only the worship, but uh, spending time learning together, but also spending time visiting with each other really proves to be worthwhile this morning at Christmas. Um, I'm going to kind of continue the series that we're doing called Christmas Calls this morning. Um, before we jump into it, though, I, I don't know about you, but there are some great Christmas songs. We experienced some of them this morning, but there are also some horrific, horrible Christmas songs. Just, just out of curiosity, my favorite Christmas song is Little Drummer Boy. Anybody else? Do I have any other Little Drummer Boy fans? A couple people. I've been, lo- I've been lobbying for years to get us to, to do Little Drummer Boy on Sunday morning during Christmas, but to no avail yet. So you can lobby with me on that if you like that. The, I think the worst Christmas song is the 12 Days of Christmas. And incidentally, if you count those days all up, the number 364 gifts is actually what you come up with. Now, here's the thing, though. I am, and you're going to find out why they never, ever let me sing up here in just a minute, because I'm going to do the 12 days of Christmas for you, Tahoe, Tahoe style, right? All right, follow along, and be gracious with me, because I'm not a good singer, right? So here we go. Number 12. Oh, no, the fonts are all messed up. 12 tourists in line at Starbucks. 11 hours without power. 10 summer concerts. Nine peaks at your weather app, which is never a good thing. Eight Baldwin Beach days. Baldwin Beach fans? Seven miles of traffic leaving town. (laughs) You know, snow or not, that's true, right? It's going out to Myers. Six great powder days. Five dollar gas. Four broken shear pins. Three more feet of snow. Two summer sunburns. And one giant snow berm. There you go. 12 days of Christmas Tahoe style for you. And like I said, you know why they do not let me sing here. All right. Father, thanks for the opportunity to get together this morning. And thanks so we can laugh together also. But Father, also just um, I'm, I'm excited about talking about you this morning. And why you are worthy of worship. And Father, I pray that you'd renew in our hearts and our minds what it means for us to give you the kind of honor that you really do deserve. So Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would be our guide this morning as we work through you. this passage, which is a great passage from uh, Matthew. And Lord, I do. I mean, I don't, I, people come in here with all sorts of different things. People are excited about going home this afternoon and spending time with their family and friends. Um, some people, this might be a really, a really difficult time of year. So, Lord, um, wherever each person is at this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have your way in our hearts and our minds, that you would use your word to help shape us to become more the men and women that you designed and desire for us to be. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this morning, um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 
2, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses in here together while you're opening your Bibles or your smartphones, your tablets, whatever, to look at that. Um, I did this exercise with my college group this last week thinking about this passage, um, and I, it was really interesting, and I, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I, I thought it would be kind of fun just to, just, to, just to sort of prime your mind thinking about the message this morning and this passage that we're going to read. Um, and I asked this question, I said, when you to my, my college group. There were 11 people there this last week, kind of a smaller group. And I just asked them, I said, when you talk to other people, Christians or non-Christians, about Jesus, how do you articulate your standing or your relationship with him? And I want you to, I just, I'll get to give you 10 seconds just in your own mind to think, how do you answer that question? How would you answer that question, right? What would you say? How do you articulate your relationship with Jesus. Here's some of the things that my college group came up with. Um, and these probably, if you just raise your hand, if some of these things are things that you thought of um, yourself. Uh, a large number of people, probably more than anything else, said that they thought of Jesus and talked about Jesus as their Savior is the most common way that they tend to talk about Jesus. Anybody in here? Yeah? Yeah? Um, some people talked about He's the Lord. It's supposed to be the Lord of their lives. Some people talked about um, that Jesus is, he really is, he's more than just our Savior, he's more than our friend, um, uh, our Lord, but he's also like, a, you know, he's a personal God, and I have a personal relationship with him, and he even calls us his friends, and so some people talked about Jesus being their friend. Uh, one, one guy in particular talked about how Jesus is um, a guide, an example as to how to live well, and it was really interesting to flesh that out with him. Um, and a lot of people talk about that Jesus is the person that they are so grateful because they, they know that he died on the cross and has forgiven them of their sins. And that's the way they primarily talk about their relationship to God. But, but here's the thing that's interesting, and you're going to find out this in just a minute as we go through this, this passage in the book of, of, uh, of Matthew. Matthew uh, each one of the four books about the life of Jesus, each one of them has sort of like a different agenda uh, thing that they really want you to understand, underlying. It's like the foundation that the rest of their thoughts are built on. And so in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, people wonder, why do we have four different stories about the life of Jesus? Well, each one of them is different, and each one is built on a different foundation. And if you want to know and you want to appreciate the book of Matthew, you have to understand this. Matthew's primary thing he wants you to know is that Jesus is the king. And he, and he's gonna, he is the king of the universe, right? I mean, he's got a huge dominion. He's the king of everything. He was the king. He is the king. And Matthew says he will be the king. And specifically, the Jewish people, he, was, he came to be their, their king, um, but, but he wasn't received very well by them. But not only did he come to be the king of that, that family, the Jewish family, Jesus comes ultimately to be king of everybody's life. And Matthew wants to know that. That's the place that Jesus is supposed to occupy in our lives not just in the world, but in our lives as well. And here's the thing I hope this morning as we go through this passage, I hope that here's the thing that you'll walk away with is that you'll have a greater appreciation and a greater desire to say, I 
I may desperately want to hold on and manage my life, but I hope that you'll walk out of here tonight to go, going this morning. This morning? Because it's not tonight. This morning. You'll walk out of here this morning with a greater sense of appreciation that the best care and the best place that you could ever live and the best hope for your life to enjoy all the good things that God desires for you to enjoy in your life is for you to become less in control and for him to have more control in your life. So let's, uh, let's read through Matthew chapter 1 through 12. I'll take pauses here occasionally just to explain a couple of things. So it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's important. Dan, did this great message three weeks ago? Is that right? Was it three weeks? Three weeks ago on prophecy and why it was necessary for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. And all these things are fulfilled that were foretold so that we know that Jesus really is the authentic king, the authentic Messiah that God promised that he was going to send. So Jesus, he's born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. King Herod, um, he was a he was a tyrannical ruler, a malicious guy, but he was also brilliant. And even still today, you can go to Israel and see his building projects all over that are absolutely marvels. Um, he was amazing, the things that he pulled off. He was the king for about 40 years. He's the king of what we would call the, the nation of Israel. He's appointed by, and it cost him a lot to become what he would call the king of that geographic area of the world. So he's the king, King Herod. So Magi, some of your Bibles may say wise men. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, why did they come to Jerusalem um, if he's born in Bethlehem? Because if you're going to go see the king, you're going to go to the capital city looking for the king, right? So that's why they go to Jerusalem. And they asked, so where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Or they're not exactly sure of the specific location of where this person has been born. They say it's because we saw the star. Now, it's interesting. They kind of assume that everybody knows about this king and about the prophecies about this king. So they say, we're, we saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. So... When King Herod heard this, he's disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So here's, here's the thing. Um, a magi, I don't know if we've got three of them over here. They even have names, right, um, that were given to him about three centuries later. Um, but you know what the thing about the magi is? is it is in Greek, plural. And, but whether there was two, three, four, five, six, ten, we really don't know. We kind of assume that there were three because of the three gifts. But even if you go to Rome today, to the catacombs, the early church, there's more than 85 different depictions of magi. Some of them have two, some of them have three, some of them have four. We don't really have any idea exactly how many there were. They probably came from Babylon uh, because people that were interested in these kinds of things, and there's a there's a large Jewish population because of the exile that lived in Babylon, probably several hundred Jewish people. So their, their, their biblical writings and prophecies about a future king would have been widely known to other people that were interested in these kinds of things. So that's probably how the Magi from the east come to Jerusalem. So, and they ask, where is the one who has been born 
king of the Jews because the sign, and you can read about this in Matthew, uh, in Micah, and also um, in Second Kings, in prophecy, they, they recognize this star tells them where the king was going to come from. Now, whether this was um, every 800 years or so, there's a major convergence of Saturn and, is it Jupiter? I can't remember. But every 800 years, every 20 years, they get close. Every 800 years, they get very, very close. And from the naked eye, they look like one planet. Um, whether it was that event, whether it was a comet, whether it was just God putting a star in the sky, we're not exactly sure what it was. But it was an answer for them, for prophecy, to know that this was the sign. And they come to worship him. So, um, the other thing that's interesting about here is notice this, right? And this is intentional on Matthew's part. He talks about in this passage, in these verses, there's, there's two kings that are mentioned here, right? King Herod, who assumes he's the rightful king of this geographic area, right? So, lo and behold, the Jewish, the, these magi, they come, and what are they interested in? Because Herod would have said, wait a minute, I'm the king of the Jews. And they say to Herod, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. So Herod would have been like, I'm glad you're here to worship me. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what he would have assumed. So it's, it makes sense that if they come to worship and he thinks he's the king, that they're there to worship him. And what he discovers that they're not there because they don't bow down, they don't present gifts, they don't pay, they do not pay homage to Herod. So what does that mean? Herod's disturbed. <laughs> Rightfully so, if you're Herod, right? Thinking, you're the boss. Nobody else is worthy of that title. Nobody else has that power. It's me. So, of course, he's going to be disturbed. And all of the people that live under some relative peace at this time, they're a little disturbed that this whole, and remember, it's not like there's just, even if there's three magi, it's not like it's just them. It would have taken a huge entourage to travel the distance that they traveled to get there. So, everybody's a little perturbed about this arrival of these guys that have come a long way. So, it says, when he called together all the, peop all the people's chief priests, the teachers of the law, he asked them, where the Messiah was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets had said. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least. Because Bethlehem's a time, I mean, it's an outpost, and it's a small place um, at the, during Jesus' time. In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of, Ju of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And that's that passage in Micah. And I think Dan referred to it a couple of weeks ago also. So then Herod, he, he, the, the Magi apparently are still in town. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. So he sent them to Bethlehem, but he said, go search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too, I want to go worship him he says. So, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose, it went ahead of them until they stopped over the place where the child was. So, when they saw the star, man, they're overjoyed. So, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. 
So it's interesting. We don't know how much time has passed between Jesus being born, because Luke chapter 2 tells us that he was put in a manger, and this is a totally different word that Matthew uses, like it's the, the word for house. So apparently Jesus has moved on, whether this is a week, several months, we don't know. That word for child, it can be used for infant, but typically it's used for someone who's not a baby anymore. So we're not quite sure how much time has transpired here. So... Um, the word there, and this is an important word in this passage if you've been paying, paying attention, is, is worship. In the Greek, it's prokaneo. And uh, in Greek, what it means is um, literally, it's a picture of somebody falling face down and paying homage to somebody. So, um, and it's almost exclusively in the New Testament reserved for talking about worshiping God and God alone. He's the only person that you would give that kind of homage to. You think about the book of Revelation and when John is taken in a vision to heaven and the angel is his tour guide and he's, he's amazed and freaked out by all he's seeing and he falls down to worship the angel. And the angel tells him, don't, and it's the same word, don't, don't worship me Worship him, Jesus, and him alone. Don't that that this kind of worship is reserved for one and only one person. So uh, they opened up their treasures. And these were serious treasures, not only now but then, especially, and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So and then having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They returned to their own, their own country by another route. So if you think about this, because um, this really is, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary considering most people traveled less than 150 miles during Jesus' time, unless you were forced or you're a soldier. People just didn't travel great distances. And so Babylon, where they probably came from, over to Jerusalem, is, it's, it's about 400 miles if you go straight across. But that's an all desert, and nobody traveled across the desert back then. People always traveled the Fertile Crescent, which meant that they would go up the Euphrates River, and all the way up, and then head down towards Damascus and down to Jerusalem. Um, so when they get to Jerusalem, um, Jesus is not in Jerusalem. He's in Bethlehem. But we went to, to Israel a couple of years ago on our free day. A bunch of us traveled, and this is uh, a group of us that were, were on the top of the wall of Jerusalem, um, the old city looking south and down to that valley. Bethlehem's just six miles away, and you could see it from where we were right there. So it's not, a, it's not a great distance that they had to travel to go from Jerusalem to where he was born. So here's the thing to think about, though. The Magi traveled that distance. It's 900 miles one way. Think about um, all that they had, all the plans, all of the adjustments, how much it would have cost and all of the people it would have taken for them to make a journey like this, round trip, would have taken probably nine months, depending, possibly a year, depending on how long they actually stayed in Jerusalem. And they didn't take the easy way back. They had to go south and then over to the coast and go up to avoid Herod as well. You talk about a major, I mean, this is a huge undertaking. 
Why would they, why would someone invest, why would someone invest that kind of time and energy, that much of an adjustment of your life and go out of your way facing who knows how many unknown dangers because these kinds of travels were dangerous then. Why in the world? We would look at these people and go, you're crazy. Why in the world would you make a trip like this? So here's the thing. I just I have two points for you really quickly that I want you to think about here. The, the first one is, this really is, uh, you saw in there, Matthew is comparing and contrasting these two kinds of kings in here. The first one is, is King Herod. One king, he's absolutely maniacal and he's desperate to maintain control over his life and his empire. And he will, he will kill anybody, anybody that stands in his way. See, if you read on in the story in chapter 16, when Herod figures out he's tricked, he's furious. He's so ticked off that he, he goes because he doesn't know exactly how old the child is. And he has every child up to two years old killed. That's how scared he is. And the, the willingness that he would go to to protect himself and his power. Herod would kill. He had several wives, but he would kill his favorite wife because he was suspicious that she was plotting against him. And after he killed her, he realized, you know what? Uh, she's really close to her mother, and if I kill her, I better kill her mom also because she very well now may plot against me. And you know what? Uh, those two sons that came from her, I'm worried about them as well. So he had them both executed. And his oldest son, who he desperately loved, he was so scared that his oldest son then at a later point would plot against him that he killed his oldest son as well. Herod was, he was desperate to control his life and his kingdom and the things that he thought he should have power over. Now, the other king, obviously, is King Jesus. And, and this is, I mean, again, Matthew is comparing and contrasting because this kind of king is totally different. In fact, he abandons his throne in heaven to come down and to be vulnerable killable. You read on in this story, Joseph and Mary have to escape because they're worried about the baby and they flee to Egypt. Jesus, if you read there in your notes, and there's a great quote about he doesn't have a palace, he doesn't have, a, he doesn't have an army, he doesn't have an envoy, he's just got a mom and a dad who are poor and fortunately, someone comes and provides resources, monetary resources, for them to figure out how to save baby Jesus and go on this trip to Egypt until Herod is dead, so they come back. And that was because the Magi provided resources for them to be able to survive. He's, I mean, you talk about, what do you do? See, here's one of the things I always wonder about. When I read the scripture and I go, God's got all the power in the world, right? And nobody's going to argue with me about that. And of all the ways God could go about orchestrating, saving the world, or showing that he's real, why in the world would you send a baby so vulnerable? And why would you send him to people that, the people that most should have appreciated him, the people that most should have been excited about his coming, were the very people that rejected him, I go, God, what are you, what are you doing? 
it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to think about the plans that God has. Jesus comes down, he's killable, he's vulnerable, placed in the situation, and he leaves it all willingly. And here's the thing about Jesus. Rather than using his power that he does have while he's here to protect his life, he gave his life to save his family. Matthew just really wants you to consider there's two totally different kinds of kings. Tim Keller, when he preaches and talks about this message, um, he does a great job of, of, you know, a lot of times when we read the Bible, we want to read our, we want to read that we're the heroes. We're the nice guys. We would have been the magi to go and celebrate Jesus, right? We're the good guys. Tim Keller has this great way of reminding us um, of who we really are. He says that the coming of Jesus into the world, it evokes hostility and pushback from, um, from the vast majority of people. And he says, we shouldn't look at Herod and say, well, he was a tyrant because he went to such great lengths to hold on to control of his life. See, he says, every single person in this room knows his own heart. And like Herod, you don't want other people telling you how to live your life. You want to choose for yourself. And I would argue with you, this is exactly why when I ask you that first question, when you think about your relationship with Jesus and you talk to other people about it, what do you call him? You call him your friend, you call him a savior, you call whatever you call him. But very, very, very few people will ever say, Jesus is my king. Why? Because as Americans, we love our freedom, man. Our, our whole country and culture was born in rebellion against a king. We don't think of kings very favorably. We don't have a high opinion of them. We're not excited. I mean, uh, you know, growing up in my life, uh, part of why I became a Christian is because I recognized that my rebellion was, it was killing me and costing me a lot because I didn't respect my parents. I didn't respect teachers. I didn't respect my coaches. I didn't respect my older, especially didn't respect my older sister to God, I hope that she listens to this message today. <laughs> I had a huge problem with authority. And I thank God, and probably I'm the only person in this room that has a problem with authority and other people telling them what to do. See, so here's the thing. We look at Herod and we go, I would never be like Herod. I would be much more like the Magi that surrendered and organized my life, taking all these risks to go and give such a precious gift to Jesus because he really is the king. He really is worthy of honor. And he's worthy of pursuing him and taking these great risks and paying homage to him. See, I, I, I wonder, I just wonder if in this story, although we'd like to pretend that we're like the Magi, if we're really more like Herod, desperate. There's things in our, our lives that we just do not want to surrender to Jesus. And we'll call him all sorts of other wonderful things, but to call and consider him king and give all of our all of our allegiance and all of our priorities over to him is something that I think is desperately difficult for us to do. So it's worth having just a smidgen of sympathy for here. He goes on to say, when people met Jesus, 
they always acted in extreme ways. They never acted moderately. They either ran from him in terror, they assaulted him with anger, or they would bow down in adoration and total surrender to him. And that's what you get in this picture of these two guys. They were either all for him or all against him. They were either afraid of him or angry at him. They gave him everything and centered their entire life around him, but nobody responded moderately. Why? Because Jesus says, I am the king. And you can either orient your life under my authority or not. And that means you give your full, full allegiance to him or not. That's what it means to be his disciple. That's what it means to follow him, is to give all of yourself, surrender to him. And that's why it's so difficult to call him our king. See, the Magi teach us something really valuable here about what is it? We, we, we use that word worship, and primarily when we think about worship, it's come to church on Sunday morning and standing up, and maybe we raise our hands and we sing songs, and we think, we think that that's what worship is. And the Bible actually has a completely different picture of what worship really is. That's just one part of what it means to give God the due of who He is. And the Magi, I think, do a great job of just reminding us of this. You see, here's the thing. If Jesus, if Think about that Tim Keller quote. See, if you take Jesus seriously, of course it makes sense. It totally makes sense to give all of yourself and prostrate yourself before him. And it's, it's worth, I, I would say it's worth going to any lengths if he really is that valuable. If Jesus really is who he says he is. And, and the peace and joy, the strength and wisdom that comes from having a relationship with him and orienting your life properly under his authority, if all of those benefits, peace, joy, strength, wisdom, if they come from benefits that he offers us if we're living in right relationship to him under his authority, why wouldn't you? What would hold you back from going to great lengths. C.S. Lewis, who's always so quotable, similar to Keller in Mere Christianity, says this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying foolish things that people often say about him. See, people are ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but he says, I don't accept his claim to be God. See, that's one of the things we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not would not be a great moral teacher. See, he'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You, you really need to make a choice about who Jesus really is. See, that'll help you orient your life under him if he is who he says he is. See, either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman, or something even worse than that. See, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. See, do you see what I mean when I say 
What I say, if Jesus is who he says he is, and all the benefits that come along from orienting our life under him, why wouldn't we prostrate ourselves fully and give all of ourselves fully and completely to him? My family and I, this last fall, a couple months ago, um, went to Yellowstone. And uh, it took a long time to prepare for the trip. And it, it, especially because uh, we took kids with us. It cost us an arm and a leg that we had to save a lot of money for. Um, it's... Yellowstone and Glacier are amazing creations of God. Um, Yellowstone, is, it's kind of like because of the geog- geological stuff that's going on. It's like being in another world. I mean, it's crazy. Just incredible. Last day we're driving out, and uh, um, we, we all would have said it was, it was well worth every bit of effort we put in to traveling. And on the last day, we saw this incredible horizon-to-horizon horizon double rainbow, and I, I didn't get the double rainbow very well here because it was just starting to fade when I actually got out and took the picture because I was in such awe of this incredible sight that I've never seen anything else like it before. It was just amazing. And you know, people have that saying, as an Irish saying, that there's a pot of gold at the end of rainbows, you know, so I don't know, maybe some people actually like try and find the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow because, they, because, because gold's valuable and so, you know, you do that. <clears throat> See, I, I think about our trip to Yellowstone and all that it took, the money and time and energy, and it was, it was a scary thing for me to be gone for a month because that means I had to leave the church in the hands of Dan, and I was scared for all of you. We thrived. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it was, it was amazing, and it, it was totally rewarding to make the sacrifice to do it. See, that's, that's the thing about Jesus. See, a lot of people think, oh man, I'm going to have to sac- sacrifice so much. And they don't really realize that you will, you will gain so much more from orienting your life under him as king than you ever will desperately trying to hold on and control which you can't control your own life anyways. <laughs> your own life. See, and so if that's true, it just it makes all the sense in the world to trust him and to follow him because he's God. And it's, God really, do, he does know what's, he really does know what's best, not only for the world, but for you and I in our lives as well, right? And the last thing is, is, and I think that the thing we find is, is when we really recognize who he is and when we stop and think of all that he's done and all the sacrifices he made for us, freely giving all of himself, even death on the cross to forgive us of our sins, something you cannot do for yourself, and it comes at great expense to him, but it comes freely to you and I. Amen. When you recognize who he is and all he's done for us, I think it becomes easy to go, of course, I'll, of course I'll fall down and give my whole allegiance, all of my, all the things, all of my life, my priorities, um, the way I think about my relationships with my spouse. 
It's no longer it's no longer thinking about life from my perspective or what I want to get out of life or how I can hold on to the things that I most want, but God, I, w- I want to adopt your perspective on my spouse of what it means to be a dad or what it means to be a pastor or a plumber or whatever your job is. To do it all, all in a way that most honors the God who made you and loved you and fully gave himself for you. Merry Christmas, everybody. I hope that you find great joy and peace and strength and wisdom in having Jesus as your king. Father, thanks for loving us and the opportunity to get together today. Lord, um, we think of you as a baby in the manger, but we worship you because even as a child... You were and you are king. And we want to give all that we have, all of our, you know, all of our treasure, all of our time, our relationships. We want to honor you in all of it. Thanks for this rich reminder in the story in the book of Matthew of what it means to think about you as our savior, as our friend, as our example, and as our king. Thanks for loving us, Lord. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming this morning. I really, really appreciate you coming to celebrate Christmas this morning here. Hope you have a great day with the rest of your friends and family. Um, Our usher is going to come forward and continue our worship giving this morning with our offering. God bless you guys. Have a great week.